All right. Amen. Thank you, Mike, again. I appreciate it so much. And um, man, I don't want to oversell this at all, but as we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, I can tell you that I'm more excited about this message than I've been any message in the Gospel of Mark so far. And I think you will see why, because this is a tremendous passage. How many of you have read or heard in Sunday school or somewhere, Jesus feeds the 5,000, right? Probably every single hand would go up for that. And let me just tell you, I don't think we, at least I know that in my own life, I haven't seen why Jesus did it. We said, well, Gary, people were hungry. Or Gary, he was performing a miracle to prove who he was. There's even more to that, and you'll see with me. In fact, as we read this passage, I want you to kind of have your thinking caps on, and I want you to look for a sentence pattern in the first five verses, okay? Actually, first six. And so follow along carefully and see if you see the pattern as well as paying attention to what God's saying as we read the text this morning. And the apostles gathered themselves to, uh, to Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said to them, come aside into a deserted place and rest a little, for there were many coming and going, and they had no opportunity even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now, many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and, and got there ahead of them. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place, and the hour is late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said, five and two fishes. Two fish. And then he commanded them all to sit down in groups of, on the green grass so they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up into heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And he took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and the fish. And read this last verse with me. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. This is God's word. So if you know something about sports, you probably know this right here. What, this is the goat, right? This is a common phrase in the last 15 years about sports. What does it stand for? Somebody tell me. Greatest of all time. The greatest of all time. So if we were to talk about the greatest of all time in basketball, who would you say? My... Yeah, see, the debate right now is between LeBron James and Michael Jordan. And if you're under 40, you're going to say LeBron James. If you're over 40, you're going to say Michael Jordan because we actually watched both of them, and we know that it's not even close, okay? So if we were to say football, who would you say is the greatest of all time quarterback? Tom Brady. Tom Brady, okay? That, I don't even like Tom Brady, but statistically speaking, it's, it's, it's even more clear-cut than, than in basketball. But if you were to say the greatest prophet of all time. If Jews during that day, the time of Jesus, who would they say was the greatest prophet of all time? They would say Moses, Charlton Heston playing Moses. And then the archaeologists figured out that Moses looked just like Charlton Heston. So it's very clear that Moses, that's all people talked about was Moses. The first five books of the Bible were called the books of Moses. And he was the greatest prophet of all time. But if you were to say, who is the greatest person in all of history, it would be Jesus. Not even close. Not even, not even close. The whole world tells, we talk about what year in history it is, that it's 2022, because 2,022 years ago approximately, he, God became flesh and lived on this planet. He changed the world. And the way he went about it was totally backwards from anybody. You know, if you said, I want the whole world, I want two-thirds of the world to claim to follow me, I want hospitals to be started, orphanages to be started. I want history to be dated because of me. What would your strategy be? 
You would hobnob with all the presidents and the kings of the world. You would have a great social media campaign. You would do all kinds of things. And Jesus says, you know what? Nah, I'm going to be born as a baby to one of the poorest families around on one of the worst sides of town. Pretty amazing how he changed the world without an army, without writing a book. He, He authored the Bible, obviously, but he didn't scribe it. Okay, He didn't do any of the things that you think it would take to become famous. And yet Jesus is the goat the greatest of all time. Uh, In previous weeks, we talked, when we were in Mark chapter 6, Jesus talked about how a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. Because when Jesus went to his hometown, he chose not to do any miracles there because they totally were like, well, you're just a carpenter's son. You're just Mary and Joseph's kid. Who are you? And so they didn't give him any honor. And then he sent the the 70 out on a journey without supplies. And then then he sandwiches in this that chiastic structure, John the Baptist story, who was a preacher without fear. And then he, they told us the story about a ruler without self-control. And who was that? That was Herod. And Herod killed John the Baptist. So, by the way, did you see the sentence pattern, anybody? Just curious. It's not really not that easy. In fact, this morning I'm teaching from the modern King James Version because it's more clear-cut the way they did it linguistically. But if you look at the, these verses right here in this passage... Your, your, uh, your grammar teacher in school would give you an F if you wrote this paper because he starts almost every sentence with end. And you're not supposed to start sentences with end, but Mark does because Mark can do what he wants to do, okay? He, he's inspired by the Holy Spirit, but he's actually showing Mark is all about action. It's like, boom, and this, and then this, and then this, and this, and this. And, this. and you know, you ever have one of your kids when they're real excited and they're telling your story and they're like, and, 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 and. And that's what Mark is doing. In fact, look at this right here. Look how many times he starts with the word end, each thought, each separate paragraph there. Um, and I, I saw that pattern there, and I thought, wait a minute, there's something here. i got to dig this up and figure out what's going on here. And sure enough, guess what I found? A chiastic structure. Okay, we always see those. And for those of you who are new, it's a sandwich. You start with a loaf of bread. you got your mayonnaise, if you're saved. And then you got your lettuce. And then you maybe got tomato. And then you got lunch meat. And then what do you do? You work your way back out the same way with more lettuce and cheese or whatever. And then you have bread. So bread, bread. And then you work what's in the middle? The meat. Okay? And so chiastic structures tell us what is the meat of the passage. And of course here you see he starts with the apostles and he ends with the same people called disciples. It talks about what he's saying to them. And it ends with what he's saying to them. And then it talks about how they departed and how they were moving away, but he was moved inside, okay? And then, um, actually, it's on the screens up here. Okay. Oh, it was. You can blame that on me, too, if you want. Okay. Um, anyway, I'll just keep moving here. But then at the very middle, it talks about how the people all, they came out of the cities and they came to Jesus. Came out of the cities and came to Jesus. And that's what the center of the passage is about. Jesus is calling people to leave where they're from, and to come to him. Um, so, uh, verse 30, And the apostles gathered themselves together and told them all things, what they had done and what they had taught. What they had done and what they had taught. Of course, the chiastic structure means you go back up and says, it tells you what they did and it tells you what they taught. If you go to the parallel verses, verses 12 and 13, it says they went on to proclaim that all men should what? Repent. Repent. In order to be saved, you must repent. We, in America, we have what's called the American Gospel. And there's a movie by that name. I recommend you watch it. It talks about how evangelism in America is just like, hey, who wants to go to heaven? Raise your hand. Okay, pray this prayer. Boom, you're on your way to heaven. And there's no repentance. No one is asked to turn from anything. Just pray a prayer and you're on your way or so they think. And that's why we will see someday people standing before the throne and says, but Lord, but then we do all these religious things. And he says, what? Depart from me. I never knew you. Because there was no repentance. And they also cast out demons. They anointed many who were sick with oil. And he healed them. So all the things they did, all the things they taught, is what's revealed right here. And you see it. Um, one, another chiasm that Mark uses. Wow, it's really off, isn't it? <laughs> okay. So the apostles were authorized and sent out in verses 7 through 13. But then he inserts the death of John the Baptist, and then the apostles return and report. So you see that pattern there. And he said to them, come aside into a deserted place, and let's rest a little bit. You guys have been working hard. 
We don't know how exactly how long they were out for weeks, maybe months on this journey. And even Jesus, who was God in human flesh, said, hey, we need to chill. We need to come away and let's have a little disciples leadership retreat here. Let's go out into a, a deserted place. Let's rest a little bit. But because they didn't have, they were so busy, they didn't even have the opportunity to eat. That's pretty busy. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. And now many saw them and recognized them. They said, hey, look, there's Jesus' disciples. They're sailing away. And they, they're, if you map their sailing route, they went about four miles across to the other side. People walked or ran as much as 10 miles and beat them there. Isn't that crazy? They were, they were hoofing it. So people were coming from all different villages, some as many as 10 miles away when they saw that. And so Jesus' little re retreat got kind of canceled. And so they were, they, when they got there, they saw all these people. So they went ashore, and there's, there's a great crowd. Now, we know how many were fed, 5,000 men. Just do a little math on that. In those days, they only counted the males, and then they just would do, by deductive reasoning, how many people would be in a family. So let's just say... 60% of the men were married. So that'd be 3,000 for those of you who finished eighth grade. So uh, add that there, their, their wives would make 8,000. But let's just say there's about maybe 3,000 single women there. So now we're up to 11,000. And let's say that every family of the 3,000 had two kids. So now we're at 17,000. And that's modestly speaking. Most scholars say it was somewhere between 14 and 20,000 people. So when it says a great crowd, it means a great crowd was there. So imagine you're in a boat, you're chilling, you're thinking you're going to have a weekend in the woods with Jesus, and you get there, and there's a multitude. And so it says when he saw the multitude, he had compassion on them. Let me go back there for a second. He had compassion. Um, this word Jesus, is only used of Jesus about 12 times in the Gospels. And it's blocked. Splachniza, whatever. It means it has to do with your gut. You ever had something happen that just made your gut feel sick? Okay. Jesus was moved internally with compassion upon these people. And when we go to work or to school or our neighborhood, and we just, we see hundreds and not thousands of people all the time. What do you see? Wow, she's dressed nice. Wow, he has a nice car. Look at those people. I can't believe they do that. That's so stupid. I would never do that. And we, we look at people, either we're impressed or we're judgmental most of the time. But Jesus was neither. He felt sorry for them. Why did he feel sorry for them? Because they were sheep without a shepherd. That's the reason why. Now, you think about that for a second. Wait a minute. Sheep without a shepherd? Man, they got religious teachers everywhere. Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, Essenes, and all different types of groups of religious leaders everywhere. They couldn't turn around without a religious leader telling them what they were doing wrong. But that's not shepherding. You see, you can drive cattle. You can only lead sheep. They had nobody standing up and leading by example in a loving, compassionate way. That's how shepherds are. They're loving and tender to the sheep. You can't beat sheep into submission. You can't just drive them and poke them and prod them. They're not cattle. They have to be led differently. And Jesus saw that you got religious teachers everywhere, but you don't have anybody really shepherding. That, that's, what, that's what we as believers need to be. When we see lost people around the world, we need to think, does that person know Jesus? Does he know Christ? Where will she spend eternity? My neighbors on the other side, where will they spend eternity? Do they have a shepherd? Do they know Jesus? That's how we need to see the world. And see, in Numbers 27, it's the chapter that tells about how we're transferring leadership from Moses to Joshua. Moses was the shepherd of the people of Israel. And it says, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man that the congregation, talking about Israel, of the Lord, may not be as sheep with no shepherd. Jesus is doing what he always does. He's quoting scripture. And that's just amazing. He does it. So when he looks on the crowd, he's thinking back to Israel, how they had a shepherd under Moses. But now he's looking at Israel today, and it's like, they don't have a shepherd. And, and uh, just like Moses transferred it to Joshua, Jesus was transferring it from these false leaders to himself. And if you say Jesus' name in Hebrew, guess what it is? It's Yeshua or Joshua. The Greek version of it is Jesus. We as Anglo say Jesus. 
but Yeshua and uh, Jesus are the same name. Jesus was named after Joshua. So Jesus is the better, greater Joshua who will be the shepherd for his people. Um, and it says he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And what did he do? These, remember, this is right before the miracle, the feeding of the 5,000. These people are what? Hungry. They're hungry. They're tired. But you know what he does? He sees past their physical hunger, which he'll get to in a little bit, but he sees their spiritual hunger, and he teaches them. And it says he didn't just teach them a short lesson. He taught them many things. You see, sheep need to be taught. And one of the greatest things I can do for you as your pastor is to teach you, to teach you. Um, so compassion with sheep without a shepherd. Uh, so we talk about compassion when we started our church, we were committed to be a different kind of church. And our church purpose statement is, say it with me, worship God passionately, love people genuinely, start a revolution. If we're going to love people genuinely, we've got to have the compassionate eyes of Jesus. And we fill this in with, um, to worship God passionately means to worship Jesus together weekly. This is important. I realize we gotta, we're living in a pandemic and people are going to be precautious. A friend of mine I was talking to, his church normally, he started his church around the same time I, we did. And uh, we stay in touch because we used to serve together. And, and uh, his church normally runs around 140. Last week he had 19. 19. So times are tough. I felt pretty good about our 31 last week and we're not much better than that this week. But anyway, this is important. We're going to do this as best we can, Lord willing. And uh but it's not just about Sundays, is it? It's also walk with Jesus daily. And then the second point, under love people genuinely or showing compassion, we need to love our life group. If you're not connected to a life group, I encourage you to make 2022 the year that you get connected to a life group, that you have a group of people who are caring for your soul, a group of people who are holding you accountable, a group of people who are there to meet your needs when you go through tough times. But at the same time, don't get so connected to them that you lose track of your lost friends. We need to have compassion on the lost always. And while I'm on the subject that the way that we change the world around us and start a revolution is by serving Jesus and by sharing Jesus. And what did Jesus say? If you've done it unto the least of these, if you've had compassion upon those in need, you've done it unto me, right? And so that's, and we share Christ with them. Now, he did all this because they were sheep without a shepherd. He saw people that way. And sheep aren't the most intelligent animals, are they? Okay, and, and they tend to travel together, and many times you'll see sheep that will go off a cliff together just because they're following each other. That's what we do. We're just all heading this way. And so we need to be the ones who are being the shepherd to them to lost and dying world. So what about all the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees? Well, I've kind of already preached ahead on that, but it says he began to teach them. Mark 1, we read at the very beginning several weeks ago, that Jesus, we always think of Jesus as hanging out with who? Go ahead, say it. Sinners, right? And he did. He definitely did. But something that it says just as much as he was, every time it says that there was a Sabbath, it says Jesus went to the synagogue. Jesus was faithful to church. He was faithful to, to go and worship God. And when he went there, he taught. And, you know, I, I mentioned this about three months ago, but I really feel led to repeat this because we have new people now. Now that God's united our churches together. And I want to make sure you know where my priorities are based on the word of God. Some people make a big distinction between preaching and teaching. And there is a distinction, but it's probably not what you think. According to people, and everybody say according to people. According to people, preaching is emotional. People get worked up when they're preaching, but teaching is very intellectual. You know, uh, Greg teaches teachers, actually, at the University of Houston downtown, and he's a very intellectual guy. And we'd say he's a teacher, but he's probably not a preacher. Well, hold your horses, maybe not. And some people say, well, preaching is all about application. Do this, don't do this, and three ways to become a better husband, five ways to be a better employee, and a lot of topical sermons on application and being super practical, and that teaching is just information. You know, one's application, the other is information. People say that preaching is motivational. You know, your best life now, and all these other things, and that's preaching, but that teaching is educational. And then people would say, uh, so therefore, according to people, Preaching is entertaining, and teaching is boring. <laughs> and 
And yet Jesus taught way more than he preached. And I don't think anybody would ever accuse him of being boring. He didn't just draw crowds based on bread and fish alone. They were also there for his teaching. So there's three problems with this, the way people see it. Number one, they're using wrong definitions. What the definition they use for teaching and the definition they use for preaching are not biblical. Jesus taught twice as much as he preached. So it's not an either or, it's a both. Most of the time when it talks about Jesus teaching, it says he was teaching and preaching. So what's, what biblically is the answer? Well, let's let the scripture answer it. Luke 20 verse 1 says, One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the synagogue and preaching the gospel. He's teaching and he's preaching. He's doing both. Uh, so according to the Bible, which is what we need to base everything on, preaching is proclaiming. Preaching is proclaiming. Teaching is explaining. One is proclaiming, one is explaining, and they need their two tools in the toolbox that work together. Preaching is encouraging and exhorting, as one Bible word would be. Teaching is equipping, and you need both, encouraging and equipping. Preaching, preaching would basically say, hey, there's a fire, and teaching would say, there's the exit. You see how you need both? You need someone to say, hey, hey, get out of here. The building's on fire. And then let me explain where the exits are. You can see how one without the other wouldn't be very helpful at all. So preaching is, hey, I don't want you to die because you're not listening as I'm saying the building's on fire. And teaching would say, hey, stop, drop, and roll. Because here's why. Um, most people die of smoke inhalation. You know, I'm, I'm sharing those facts. But that motivates you. So I, I could say, you know, why, why aren't you running, people? I'm telling you, the building's on fire, and there's the exit. Stop, drop, and roll. And so most people die of smoke inhalation. That, that fact would possibly motivate you that, well, hey, the fire's out there in the hallway. I'm okay, even though the room is filling with smoke. Matthew 11.1 1 says, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went out from there to what? Teach and preach. Teach and preach. And yet if you look at America's most popular churches, it looks more like entertainment than it does like Bible teaching. You will see one verse, and then they'll go off and tell all their stories, and then pray a prayer. And, then, and again, that, that's not what, what Jesus had in mind. It's definitely not what Jesus did. It, when he saw the crowd, he had compassion on them. And what was his response to being compassionate? To teach them. 2 Timothy 4.2 says, preach the word. Not Gary's opinions, not Gary's stories, not what's happening in the news. I'm going to preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. When it's popular and when it's not popular. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, and do it with all patience and do it with what? Preaching with teaching. Combine the two. They're a great combination. He goes on to say, for the time is coming, and I think we're there, when people will not endure sound teaching. You, you teach biblically verse by verse. People are like, oh, you know. We had a family that left our church about six months ago because they said that my preaching was too much teaching and not enough preaching, not enough application. Um, they probably could have heard this sermon. It would have helped. But having itching ears, like, hey, tickle, make me what, you know, do what makes me feel good, and accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own what? Passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander into myths. Let me just, I don't like to read long quotes, but I do want to read this because this is very powerful. It is no secret that Christ's church is not at all in good health. Talking about today's Christianity. In many places of the world, she has been languishing because she has been fed as the current line is junk food. All kinds of artificial preservatives and all sorts of unnatural substitutes have been served up to the church. As a result, theological and biblical malnutrition has afflicted has afflicted the very generation that has taken such giant steps to make sure that its physical health is not damaged by using foods and products that are carcinogenics and otherwise harmful to their physical bodies. Simultaneously, a worldwide spiritual famine resulting from the absence of any genuine publication of the word of God, referring to Amos 8, continues to run wild. That's a powerful quote there. Mark 6, it says, so the disciples come to him and it says, and it grew late, and the disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place. A little geography lesson there for you, Jesus, in case you didn't notice. And it's actually, it's, notice the sun's going down, Jesus. It's getting late. 
And I'm sure Jesus looks at Peter and says, well, thank you, Captain Obvious. I appreciate the geography lesson and tell me what time it is. You know, I, as if Jesus couldn't tell for himself. And he sent them away to go into the surrounding countryside. And they said, I'm sorry, disciples are saying, hey, send the people away. How do you just send 17,000 people away? And just, hey, why don't you all reach in your pockets and go find a McDonald's in the next town over or something like that and uh, buy themselves something to eat? Do you see this? When you, when you read the scripture this year in 2022, one of my New Year's resolutions is to slow down and read it more carefully. Look what the disciples' solution is. Let them go feed themselves. If that isn't the message of our day, you take care of you. you. You find what's true for you in your heart, and you do what's right for yourself rather than Jesus feeding you. And, that, and you're seeing a lot of humanism involved, even in the church and Christianity. Um, it says, but he answered them, no, you give them something to eat. Now, think about what just happened. They came back to Jesus and said, man, we taught everybody we cast out demons. We performed all kinds of miracles. And Jesus says, since you did all that great stuff, why don't you feed them? I'm like, what? Huh? Do something supernatural? Like, what? <laughs> they just got doing all kinds of supernatural things, and now all of a sudden they don't know, have a clue what to do. I think we could put ourselves in that situation, can't we? And it says, and they, if you look at, read John, it's Philip is kind of the spokesman for the group, said to him, shall we go away and buy 200 denarii? Worth of bread? Now, a denarii was one day's labor, okay? So let's just roughly translate that into today's dollars. If, if, if a denarii is a day's wage, and someone makes $10 an hour, just we'll start on the lower end of the spectrum, and they work eight hours a day, they're making 80 bucks a day, so that would be the equivalent of a, of a denarii, okay? And he says 200 denarii, so basically... $80 a day times 200 days is $16,000. And we've got $16,000 for about approximately 16,000 people, right? So that's basically a buck a person, okay, to buy some pretty good bread. So I could see where Philip or somebody was doing some pretty quick math, and they're saying, hey, this is about what it would take to feed this many people. But that's what, it, that's what you would figure if you were leaning on human reasoning, if you're looking at it from a human perspective. You see, they, they saw it was a desolate place, so they're like, well, it's not like there's an orchard where we could go grab a bunch of apples or oranges or something around here, so there's not enough resources. Uh, the day is over, so we really don't have enough time to go somewhere and prepare and cook a meal and do all that stuff. Uh, 200 denarii, well, evidently that's not enough money because that's only a buck a person. That's not even including fish or some meat to go with that bread. And then so we only have five loaves and two fishes, so there's not enough food to go around and from a human perspective, they are exactly right if you're using human reasoning. But we serve an amazing God, don't we? Who can do abundantly above all we could ask or think. You know, a year ago, we're scraping and we're saving as a church and we got a piddly $45,000 in the bank on how are we ever going to get a building? God's up in heaven going, I know. <laughs> I can do the supernatural. I can make big things happen. You have no clue what I can do. All you need to do is trust me and to pray. Proverbs 3, 5, you, you all know this verse, right? Trust in the Lord, everybody read it with me, with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. It went away again. Maybe you know it by heart. <laughs> in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. You see, in Numbers 13, they sent 12 spies out. God didn't tell them to send 12 spies. God said, I, I'm giving you the land. And they're like, no, we need to go spy it out first. Ten spies go, man, it is amazing. It's all that they've said. Man, look at these grapes. They're the size of basketballs. I mean, this is pretty amazing here. But those guys are giants. In fact, we felt like grasshoppers in their eyes. See, they were looking at it through their eyes, through the enemy's eyes, but not through God's eyes. So God said, you know what? No, I'm, I'm bigger than those giants. I can take care of this for you. You know, David goes out there versus Goliath. Goliath, if you do the measurements, roughly nine and a half feet tall. David, if he was the average man back in those days, was 5'8", maybe. 5'8", versus nine and a half feet tall. Goliath is a trained warrior. David is just a shepherd. But everybody's going, man, Goliath is so big, we can't win. 
And David is like, Goliath is so big, I can't miss. How do you, I mean, he's a huge target. And he'd been practicing. He, he talked about how he killed lions, how he killed bears, sometimes with his own bare hands, which means I think what happened is he, when, when, the, when a bear is mauling a sheep, he jumps on it, grabs it by the beard, <clears throat> breaks its neck. You know, there's all kinds, yes, amen, right? Can I get a hi Okay, good. Um, so, um, but it, when, when he had a, a flock of sheep and he'd see coyotes come up on the hillside or a pack of dogs, you know what he'd do? 200 yards away, boom, nail one of those dogs, scare the rest of the pack off. He'd been practicing. God had been training him for so many years. David didn't look at it from the human perspective. He looked at it from God's perspective. And that's what Jesus was trying to get the disciples to do. You feed them. You just got done performing miracles. You can do this. And he said to them, how many loaves and fishes do you have? I love how Jesus asks a question. He doesn't scold them. If it had been Gary, he'd be like, you bunch of knuckleheads. Didn't you know you could have done this? Blah, blah, blah. Why? Y'all just sit down and shut up. Let me do this. That's what I would have done, right? But he asked questions. Well, let me, guys, how many loaves do you have? Why, why don't you go and look and see? And of course, we know from John chapter 6, they found a kid. They snatched his lunchbox out of his hands, and they bring it, and they claim it's theirs, and whatever. You know the story. That's from the message. And when they found out, they said, they have five loaves and two fishes, Let's pack it up and go home. This is, I mean, this will feed me. <laughs> Y'all get your own, right? And he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. It's interesting. Jesus did this miracle twice. He does, did it for the Jews on green grass. He did it for the Gentiles on dry grass. It's interesting that I, I can't have time to get into all that, what that means. So they sat down by groups of hundreds and fifties. He didn't tell them to do that. They did that on their own. Why? Where did they get that from? They got that from the Bible. Exodus 18 says, moreover, look for able men, all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe and place such men over the people uh, and chiefs of thousands, over hundreds and fifties and even tens. They knew at, for all of their history, they, they learned that when they assembled, they were to sit in groups of hundreds and fifties and they, that way their leaders could report and count who was there. And that's why you see so many times in the Bible, It'll say that there was 23,214 people there. Like, how do they know that? Because when they gather, they know, hey, here's my 50. There's your 50. And they could go 100, 200, 4, 5, 6, something like that, like that. And then there's the 50s. And then we've got a handful left over. So all these things going on. Thanks for bearing with me with the technology here. Again, it's probably my fault. Okay. Um, so here he says, send them away. And I'm just probably going to skip this for right now. But it's interesting. Um, let me just go here. So verse 41 says, And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Even Jesus gives thanks for his food. And this may sound super elementary, but let me encourage you wherever you're at, whether you're at Olive Garden or in the lunchroom at work or having a meal with another family, take time to give thanks. Don't do it in a pious way like, let us all pray. Holy Father, Thou who are king of the heaven. You don't have to be all pious about it. Just bow your head and give thanks to the Lord. Number one, three times a day, if you're eating three squares, you're going to remember God. That's a good thing, by the way. And maybe three times a day, someone else is going to see that you're remembering God. And that's a good thing. It's a good testimony. And Jesus probably prayed a traditional Jewish prayer, a Father, Lord of the universe, maker of bread to feed all of your creation. And sent something like that. But he looked up to heaven and he blessed the food. Now, it says, and he broke the loaves and gave to them. He gave to the disciples. So when Jesus said, you feed them, they're going to do it. He didn't say, you guys sit back here and let me just pass out and feed the people. He delegated to the 12 and he let them feed them. Now, think about this. He's breaking it up. And the, I don't know how this is going down. The disciples are probably bringing bat brass, baskets, you know, and he's putting fish in there. And so they're covering the, the, the basket probably to avoid flies and whatever else because they're out in the wilderness. And every time they peel back the cloth, they're like, what? <laughs> okay, hold on. Here, you all take some. What? <laughs> and then we keep giving out. Hey, Jesus, I'm going to need more. No, okay, maybe not. Okay, and then they're passing this out. And this keeps going on over and over again. And, and there's all kinds of theories on how this happened. Let me get to the right page here, sorry. Um, and some of them are pretty lame. <laughs> uh, 
It's funny how people always look to try to explain away what Jesus did. Okay, some people, and I had a guy actually who attended church here about a year ago tell me this, that the miracle really was, what happened was, everybody felt guilty and they started pulling out their lunch and sharing. And that the miracle was in the sharing. That's rubbish. And that's putting it nicely. That's just stupid, okay? And then some people say, you know what? Everybody took a teeny weeny piece, you know? Like, what are they doing? Licking the fish and passing it? I mean, that's just crazy. What? They're not doing any of this stuff. And there's all kinds of things. Hey, the God who spoke the world in existence performed a miracle. Okay, five loaves, two fishes became 50,000 loaves and 60,000 fishes or something like that. And because we know that it wasn't just everybody take a little bit and let's all share. It says everybody was satisfied. They're like, oh, man. That was the best fish po' boys I've had in a long time. That was, that was awesome, Jesus. When can we do this again? And it says, and they all ate. Every single one of the 17,000 people ate. And not just ate, was satisfied. Okay? And it says, and they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces. And those who ate the loaves and the fishes were 5,000 men working our way backwards here. When Jesus feeds a crowd, he does it right. Okay? He, he, uh, and he has enough for leftovers. And how many baskets do he have left over? Twelve. Does that sound familiar? How many disciples does he have? Here's an object lesson for each one of you guys who didn't have enough faith when I told you to feed them, that you take this home and say, yeah, Jesus was right. I was wrong. Okay? But I think it's more than that. How many tribes did Israel have? Twelve. Jesus is showing something bigger here than just a miracle of feeding fish. But when Jesus feeds you, you can be satisfied. You know, um, one of the most popular songs of all history, it's number three on the most famous songs of all of history, is by the Rolling Stones, Satisfaction. How many are old enough to remember that? Okay. And you, if not, you've probably heard it. And it's a good song. It's kind of a catchy song. But the lyrics are pitifully sad. Talks about all the things he tries in life. And he says, I try. And I try, and I try, but I can't get no satisfaction. He's basically pouring out his heart in the lyrics. And the, the, the music makes you think this is an upbeat, happy song. But you read the lyrics, you're like, if this isn't the story of every lost person in the world. I try. I tried drugs. I tried being promiscuous. I tried being successful. I tried being famous. I tried being fashionable. And I still can't get no satisfaction. It's a, and when Jesus fed the multitude, everybody was satisfied. And that's not just talking about physical food, okay? It's talking about Jesus satisfying us. And when, G, when the disciples said, Lord, please, we want to pray like you. Teach us to pray. The heart of the prayer is give us this day our daily bread. And that is not praying that God would keep your refrigerator full. It's talking about satisfy us the emptiness and the longing deep inside of our souls because Jesus, without you, we're empty. And you know what we do today? We try to fill it up with all kinds of stuff. And we got the whole world on our phone. We're scrolling and scrolling and scrolling and we're posting and we're posting and we're posting and we're, we're streaming and we're streaming and we're streaming and we're doing all kinds of stuff and we're going to the gym, we're working out, we got our earbuds in, we're doing all kinds of stuff to fill the emptiness inside of us and then we just keep moving on to the next thing. Oh, and I'm bored with that. Move on to the next thing. And what we need to do is stop and slow down and ask the Lord Jesus to fill our souls. And let him satisfy. Let us be the one that, 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 he, that satisfies us, that deep longing deep inside our hearts. I keep mess Every time I pick up my phone, I mess this up. <laughs> All right, here we go. It says, and they all ate, and they were satisfied, and they took up 12 baskets full. Don't forget the significance of that. And a man came, so 2 Kings, is this, this, again, Jesus is, is fulfilling Old Testament scripture here. A man came from Baal Shalath, something like that, bringing the, the man of God, this is Elisha, not Elijah, Elisha, the first fruits, okay? So the offering that was given to the temple this guy went and took the bread, okay? And he took 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elijah said, give the men that they may eat. 
But several of the servants said, well, how can I set this before 100 men? You got 20 loaves of bread and you got 100 men here. The math is not going to work. He says, so he repeated, give them to the men that they may eat. For, for thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. Now, Elisha does something that Jesus didn't do because Jesus didn't have to. Elisha prophesied, say, hey, the Lord told me there's, this food is going to multiply. Jesus didn't have to say, thus saith the Lord, because the, the Lord is thus saying right now. He, he's speaking for himself because he's God. So Elijah was one of the greatest prophets of all time who did many miracles. His replacement or successor did even more miracles than Elijah did. And Jesus proves that he is greater than both of them is what he's doing in the situation. When he says, when he multiplies it and has leftover baskets, every little Jewish kid is going, wait a minute, I know that story. I was learned that in Sabbath school. I remember hearing about how there were leftover fragments when Elijah did this. And Jesus doesn't just have a little bit left over. He's got tons left over. And Jesus didn't feed 100 men. He fed 5,000 men plus their families. Do you see what's going on in the minds of every Jewish person there? Deuteronomy 18, 18 says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you. Talk about Moses. God's speaking to Moses from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to all that to them all that I command. In verse, chapter 34, verse 10, so Joshua, get this, Joshua takes his place. Some people think, oh, okay, oh, you're talking about Joshua when you raise up a man. Mm-mm. It says, in 34, chapter 34, after Joshua's been leading, it says, there has not arisen a prophet since Israel like Moses. Okay? Jo- Joshua wasn't that replacement. He's talking about prophesying of, of Jesus. You see, the feeding of the 5,000, get this here, and the resurrection are the only miracles in all four Gospels. There's something significant there. We know why the resurrection was important, right? Our salvation totally hinges upon it. If Jesus, like Paul said, is not risen from the dead, we are of all men most miserable. So the resurrection is the most important event in history. But get this, Jesus also includes the feeding of the 5,000 in all four Gospels. Why? Because it says who he is. He's saying, I am the greater Moses. I am the greatest prophet of all time. I am the goat, is what he's trying to say by this miracle. Okay, John chapter 6, verse 13. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets and fragments from the five barley loaves. Barley was typically what poor people ate. Jesus could have given any kind of bread he wanted. He could have done oat grain or honey, you know, honey wheat or whatever. He could have done all kinds of extravagant bread but he chose to do barley and he could have turned into whatever he wanted and uh it says in verse 14 and when the people saw the sign that he had done this is what john's version of the story is they're like wait a minute did you see what he just did he did something bigger than elijah he did something better than moses could he be the one in fact this indeed is not a prophet but what everybody the prophet who is to come into the world this is what Israel and the world have been waiting for for thousands of years. And Jesus feeding the 5,000 was not about hungry people. It was saying, hey, I'm here. I am here. And that's what this story is about. So who is Jesus? He is the greater Moses, the Messiah, that, was the, that the whole Old Testament, thousands of years of history, was pointing to. So let's do a little comparison here. Moses, Pharaoh tried to kill him by killing all the male babies. And the midwives resisted and foiled his plan, right? Jesus, Herod, tried to kill him by killing all the male babies, and the Magi resisted his plan. See the parallel there? It gets better. Moses, his family fled from Egypt. Jesus, his family fled to Egypt. Moses was under brutal Egyptian rule. Jesus came at a time when people were under brutal Roman rule. Moses showed power over the sea by walking through it. Jesus showed power over the sea by walking on it and calming it, right? Moses miraculously fed the people in the wilderness manna and quail. Jesus miraculously fed the people in the wilderness bread and fish. Moses led 12 tribes. Jesus had 12 apostles. Moses appointed 70 elders. Jesus sent out 70 evangelists. Moses was not always supported by his siblings. Remember, um, Miriam and, and Joshua and all them. Um, anyway, 
But Jesus was totally rejected by his siblings until after the resurrection and rejected by his own people. He came into his own and his own received them not. Moses performed miracles with his rod in his hand, proving he was set with, from God. Jesus performed miracles with just his hand, proving that he was God. Moses, his face was radiant because he was in the presence of God. Jesus at the transfiguration, his face was radiant because he was the presence of God with us. He indeed is the greater Moses. Moses was willing to die for the sins of his people. Remember when he said, Lord, kill me instead. Don't, don't forsake your people. But Jesus was willing and did die for the sins of his people. When the, when the people were murmuring and complaining, God sent fiery serpents. Remember that story? And what was the solution? Moses formed a bronze serpent and hung it up on a cross. And Jesus came and died for the sins of people, lifted up on a cross. In fact, he prophesied that. In John chapter 3, he says that Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And they were all like, wait a minute. I remember the story of the bronze serpent. And how do you put a bronze serpent around a pole? you got to put a cross beam on it, otherwise it's just going to slide down. And they're like, Moses lifted up on, like, it was a cross-shaped one. Wait, crosses? That's how the Romans kill us. What? That's what you're going to do, Jesus? It never quite clicked with them. And he, why did he do that? That whoever believes in him may have what? Eternal life. Eternal. How long does life, eternal life last? For eternity? But many churches teach that, well, it lasts until you mess up again, and then you have to get saved again. Or you, know, you have to be good to keep it. Let me tell you something. If you weren't good enough to get salvation, you can't be good enough to keep it. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. When he said on the cross, it is finished. Everything that could be done to save your soul was done on that cross. Anything good I do for Jesus now is out of thanksgiving to him because he saved my soul. Moses led his people to the promised land. Jesus leads his people to the eternal promised land. Moses was a prophet of God, and Jesus here by feeding the 5,000 shows that he is the prophet of God. Powerful passage here. In John 6, 13, it says, And they gathered him up. Then they filled the 12 baskets and fragments and five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And when the people saw the sign, the sign of the feeding of the multitude, they were like, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. So who is the greatest of all time? It's Jesus Christ. He, he's not the goat, really. He's the lamb. He's the lamb of God. John says, for the law was given through Moses. What does the law do? People think, well, I'm going to go to heaven because I keep the Ten Commandments. Oh, really? You do? You keep the Ten Commandments? And we could go through every single one of them and talk about how many we have all broken. The law curses us. The law says guilty, 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 guilty. You've broken six out of ten. You've broken seven out of ten. You've broken ten out of ten. You've broken four out of ten. You're all lawbreakers. But thank the Lord that grace, when God gives us what we don't deserve, and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus is indeed the better Moses. John 6, 32, and Jesus, then Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. They're thinking that was a miracle Moses did, but technically it was the Father using Moses. But here, guess what? The Father now gives you the true bread from heaven. You thought manna was good? I am the bread of life. Do you know Jesus Christ today? Do you know you can trust him as your savior? Would you bow your head and close your eyes? I want to ask you if you know Christ to, to please pray that God would open hearts and minds. Maybe there's someone who will watch this later and come to Christ because of our prayers today. But if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and savior, you can know him today. Simply by faith, trust in what he did on the cross. Why don't you right now just pray and ask him to save your soul. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. It is so powerful. Thank you for being the greater Moses, the prophet who came into the world. Not just a cute little manger scene, but a cruel cross. And in that, we have our hope of salvation, our only hope of salvation. 
Help us to realize you're the only one that can bring satisfaction to a dying and, and, and lost world. And help us to be like the disciples, to be the ones that carry that bread out. You delegated to them. Now you've delegated the Great Commission to us. Help us to be faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, Amanda, would you like to help me with question and answer? Okay. And we're going to give you this microphone right here. And keep in mind that um, you may have to put your phone on Wi-Fi calling to, for the text to get through because the reception's not great in this building right here. But, um, and if you, you could also raise your hand and, uh, and ask a question because um, right now we have none. Okay. Anybody have a question? Go once. Come on, Charles. You're good for a question usually. Oh, I know. I know. Yeah. We've seen people race through first line. Now, this happened in the 1920s where liberalism came into Christianity in America. And they started, they said, you know what? We want the teaching of Jesus love your neighbor, be kind, be forgiving. But we can't swallow the miracles of Jesus. People are too intelligent for that. We We now have science, we know that none of that's true. And so all those churches that thought, if we do this, we will, be, we will grow because we're going to reach America for the way it is. America's more intellectual. America's more smart. And guess what? Those mainline churches, which I'll just go ahead and say it, Episcopal, Lutheran, United Methodist, they're all dying like crazy. And the non-denominationals and the churches that are sticking to the gospel of Jesus Christ and believe the miracles have exploded. And in a day when they said, oh, we have science, we have the internet. And yet Christianity is, is exploding not in America as much, but in other continents it is. You know, the Koreans are now sending missionaries to the United States. 50 years ago, Korea was 1% Christian. It's now 48% Christian. Think about that. Uh, there's, it, it, 100 years ago, the continent of Africa was like 5% Christian. It's now like 65% Christian. So in other continents, Christianity is exploding. Even as the world becomes more and more scientific, we're believing the miracles. Um, it's funny. It's either feast or famine. We either have 10 questions or none. I, like. I, have another, I have a question. All right. Did you have one, Charles, though? Okay, good. I, I have a question. So I remember when I was a teenager and my theology was just junk. Hold that close. But, oh, hello, hello, hello. Okay. Um, my theology was junk when I was a teenager, and I remember my, one of my bosses was telling me um, that he just thought Jesus was a great teacher. And I remember, like, you know, I read my Bible, but I had, I had no comeback. And still to this day, I'm like, what would I say now if somebody told me, no, Jesus is just a great teacher. He was a good teacher. What, what should be said to that's, that? That's great. That's great. And it goes back to the classic C.S. Lewis answer. If someone claims to be God and they're not, they're not a good teacher. They're a liar. Right? I mean, I can't go around lying and claim to be God and, and, or... Maybe I really think I'm God, so that would make me a lunatic, right? It's the three L's. So either he's a liar, a lunatic, or he is Lord. But there is no middle ground. You can't claim this great teacher stuff. It's an insult to Christianity. It's an insult to Christ. If someone claims to be the goat, he either is or he isn't, okay? So you can't say, well, you know, yeah, he's a good teacher. So um, what they're doing is they're, it's people. it's funny how people like, you know, people on television, daytime television, they want to quote the Bible and it supports their thing, but then they'll turn around and say the Bible's not true. And the Bible's full of mistakes. But you just got done quoting the Bible. It's like they, they contradict themselves. All right, good deal. All right, let's stand.